Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Washington Weekly Podcast on the UBS In The Now podcast channel. Our conversation today will bring you up to speed on a range of developments within the Beltway and beyond. Joining me once again for the conversation, glad to welcome back Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. So, Shane, great to be back with you again. Thank you for dropping by. Looking forward to the conversation. Hey, Dan. Happy Friday. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. So a few items this week, Shane, we want to catch our listeners up on. There has been a lot of buzz surrounding a Congress stock trading bill. We've been hearing a lot about this this past week. Could you provide our listeners, our clients, with some context as to how this all came to be and what the bill aims to address if passed through? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. It's actually something we've been monitoring uh, for a while, I think we wrote about this in the Washington Weekly, you know, um, uh, a couple of months ago, you know, maybe in the summer, you know, and this has gone back and forth. There are actually several versions of this bill out there to kind of essentially ban members of Congress from uh, trading on stock. You know, I think uh, there was really good momentum, you know, in the summer uh, and early, you know, September to get this. Uh, passed through the House, that faltered, and now Republicans are trying to get uh, excitement up again for uh, this bill. It, it has bipartisanship, so it, I don't want to pose it as Republicans only, um, but Republicans are seizing on that Democrat leadership didn't put this on the floor right before they uh, left the campaign for the elections. I think the, there are many reasons why it didn't happen at this point. Um, because while, you know, it kind of is a simple idea that seems simple to you and me, when you start breaking it down, there are a lot of uh, complex pieces to it. You know, let's just think about, you know, someone who um, was in business and, and uh, you know, over the course of time had part of their compensation in stock, you know, and then they decide to run for Congress. You know, they may have a large position there, you know, uh, is it the right thing to make them sell that position just because they became a member of Congress or someone who's a, a business owner, you know, and they're, they're like the single largest shareholder of their own company, you know? Um, so a lot of questions about, you know, the real intricate details here. And then also, does that hurt in the sense of who will actually run for Congress? You know, I think you overall, we would agree that we all want kind of, um, a diverse population of Congress. You know, you just, you don't want uh, 435 lawyers in the House of Representatives. You want people with real world experience. And would something like this prevent people with real world experience from running for Congress? So I think, you know, there are a variety of reasons that the, the brakes were pumped here. And, you know, everyone thought that this was going to be right for doing right before the House left for uh, campaign for elections, because that's kind of the right time to do something that's kind of populist like this. So I think that um, leads us to believe that, you know, this may not happen. Uh, it still may, you know, uh, after uh, the members come back uh, for after the election for the lame duck session. But, you know, I think right now we're not expecting this to um, get enough momentum to pass right now. Interesting timing with Election Day only a few weeks away. I know there is a lot of eyes on this one. Uh, interesting developments here, Shane. So thank you for the update and we'll keep track of this. I do want to turn to the midterm elections. We can spend a few moments bringing our listeners up to speed. As mentioned, just a few weeks to go at this point. It does appear that races are getting tighter and tighter, namely some of these key Senate races. So what have 
have you been tracking over the past week or so, Shane? And what are the polls pointing to as of today? Yeah, no, I mean, election is right around the quarter. In fact, I mean, many people are voting already. You know, voting has started in many states with early voting, mail in voting, et cetera. So, you know, the election is, you know, to some degree already here, but election day is a few weeks away. And uh, so, you know, what you see the polls narrowing in some instances because people are now really starting to pay attention and make their decisions. And, you know, people who we may have thought would eventually go one way or the other, you know, are in fact doing that. So, you know, I think uh, most notably, you know, uh, to us is Pennsylvania is narrowing. Uh, that could be the race that really decides control of the Senate. You know, I, you've seen Wisconsin narrow somewhat, um, but, you know, I think it's also going back the other way towards Re- uh, Republican incumbent Ron Johnson a little bit. Uh, Nevada is looking very close, and but we think uh, the Republican has a little bit of an advantage. But then for Democrats, you see, uh, you know, New Hampshire looks to, move from a competitive seat to almost solid Democrats. So that's good news for Democrats. Democrats have been uh, actually doing well in Georgia, where Raphael Warnock, the incumbent Democrat senator, is looking strong. He has not locked that race down by any means. Um, you know, that is close. Um, another one uh, that's narrow right now is Ohio. We do think Republicans will prevail there. Uh, so overall, you're right. This is getting tighter and tighter, um, but it's only a few races that are going to matter. And, and right now we're, we're circling Pennsylvania to be, you know, kind of uh, the one that we're watching maybe with, with the closest uh, anticipation that it could matter uh, for the who, for the outcome of the Senate next year. Well, thank you, Shane, for the update. Anything can happen over the next few weeks, and we'll, of course, continue with our election coverage in the weeks leading up to Election Day. I do want to pivot a bit to geopolitics, continuing our conversation on the Russia-Ukraine war. This week, a notable development we did see on Thursday, yesterday, the United Nations officially condemn Russia's illegal annexation of Ukrainian territories. So an impactful step. What is the significance of this step, Shane, and what kind of support for Ukraine has the U.S. in particular committed recently, maybe in the way of military aid? Yeah, no, great question, and you're correct. There was a very strong vote yesterday um, in the U.N. Um, I think it was over 140 countries voting to condemn um, uh, Russia. Only five voted in Russia's favor, including Russia. And then there were actually about three dozen countries that um, voted uh, um, uh, uh, to abstain. So, you know, that's not unheard of. You know, I think, uh, um, you know, it is noteworthy that those countries abstain. But a lot of them have a kind of a history of trying to remain neutral when it comes to these sort of things. And also a lot of these countries deploy, uh, rely on supplies. Uh, especially uh, food supplies from, you know, like wheat and grain from Russia. So they're trying not to poke the bear. Um, but you're right. You know, the U.S. Uh, continues to uh, stand with Ukraine. You know, there's um, a, uh, another tranche of, you know, a billion dollars in security assistance to Ukraine, uh, I think, heading uh, that way, uh, not to mention um, uh, humanitarian aid. Hundreds of millions of dollars the U.S. continues to provide humanitarian aid um, for the citizens in Ukraine who are just trying to survive right now under these brutal conditions. Um, 
but it's just not the U.S. You know, there are thousands of Ukrainians in the United Kingdom right now who are getting military training and they'll go back to Ukraine to, to fight Russia. So, you know, this continues to be ongoing. But, you know, besides this, we've seen uh, a continue um, to march towards this continuing on. You've seen uh, Russian President Putin, you know, um, start to tease nuclear war. And you've seen reaction from European nations, you know, that are very concerned and scared about this. You're seeing... Um, um, some uh, nuclear war drills being actually run uh, in, in Europe. So, you know, uh, a lot of concern here that we're heading in the wrong direction. I think some of this is posturing and some of it is desperation. Um, as you see uh, Russia, you know, really militarily, uh, you know, <laughs> remember months ago we were talking that Russia thought this was going to be a three-day war. You know, this is obviously going to last to be probably a year at the very least. Um, it's not longer. So militarily it hasn't gone Russia's way, which is leading to them to really scramble for how to get themselves out of this. Well, hard to believe we've been talking about this since February. And to your point, it doesn't seem like near term there is an end in sight, though it is encouraging to hear that there are resources continuing to flow into Ukraine to support the military efforts and the general population. So we'll continue to keep in touch on this. Another geopolitical story I wanted to touch on as we begin to close out. We did hear recently that the White House, President Biden, uh, perhaps rethinking the U.S.'s relationship with Saudi Arabia, you think about oil importation in particular, what exactly triggered this rethinking, Shane, and how might this all evolve from here? Yeah, this is a little bit of a, you know, a tit-for-tat, we'll say. You know, um, you've seen Saudi Arabia, um, you know, who is the lead in OPEC, you know, oil-producing nations, uh, say that they're going to cut production, which you know, it has a couple impacts. One, obviously, as, as oil prices, gas prices are higher in the U.S., that's not going to help uh, in that struggle to try and get lower gas prices for Americans. Two, what that does is, um, you know, possibly help Russia as the area are heavily sanctioned right now. One of the, you know, few things they can do is sell oil and gas to certain countries, and, and this may make their oil and gas more valuable. Uh, so, you know, the Biden administration is concerned that this will help prop up uh, Russia, you know, as, you know, the rest of the world is trying to starve them off in a sense, right? So you have um, accusations from President Biden, his team saying, you know, Saudi Arabia, you're aiding Russia, stop it. And Saudi Arabia on the other side saying, we, we, we joined you and the rest of the world in condemning Russia in that UN vote we were just talking about. So, you know, I do think that tit for tat is not helpful. I mean, at the end of the day, at this moment, you know, Saudi Arabia is still our ally to some uh, to some great extent, you know, um, especially in that region when you look around, you know, they're next door neighbors to Iran, and they share similar feelings that the U.S. does about Iran. Um, so, you know, I think this tit, tit for tat uh, may last a little while, but I think... Uh, you know, eventually um, the two nations will recognize that they are allies and and kind of uh, come to a solution, hopefully sooner rather than later. But, you know, um, as we've seen before, you know, this back and forth can unfortunately last too long. So this one, uh, 
is in the opening stages, we'll say, in that tip for tat, and we'll see how it plays out. Well, definitely a delicate and complex relationship between these two countries, so we shall see how this back and forth progresses. Though, Shane, as always, thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients, here on the Washington Weekly Podcast for covering all of the ground that you did for us, and looking forward to reconnecting with you in the week ahead. Wish you a nice weekend. Thank you, Dan. Hope you have a great weekend, too. Look forward to talking to you next time. Sounds good. Thank you, Shane. Again, today we've been joined by Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. As a reminder to our listeners and their clients of UBS, please be sure to reference the latest Washington Weekly publication, which can be located on UBS.com forward slash Washington Weekly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy.